Hi, this is Sam Chamberlain, and welcome to Things to Ponder, the sermon podcast from St. Mary's United Church of Christ in Silver Run, Maryland. Follow along with St. Mary's at stmarysucc.org or on Facebook and Instagram. Wishing you peace and good, my friends. And so perhaps like you, I've spent some time just kind of reminiscing and sort of being awash in 260 years of this congregation. And if you'll permit me for a minute, one of my favorite parts of that was indeed when you gave me my picture. I feel like I've like achieved something of real value. I feel like I'm a part. Like for some reason that really meant a lot to me. And so I wanted to say thank you. It is not lost on me, however, because I spent some time in the vestry. I'm like, you know what? With my picture now, I'm going to go spend some time with those who came before me. And I can't help but notice that my picture doesn't look like everybody else's picture. Um, I just look a little different. I don't know what y'all intend to say by that, but some of me takes a little bit of pride in that, all right? And so I just, I really enjoyed spending some time with that, and I wanted to say thank you. And I hope that last week was an encouragement to you, not just in that we made it to 260 years, but I hope in the message that we were able to say to one another that actually faith doesn't get renewed. It only grows, We already have everything we need to live the life of faith that Jesus anticipates for you and for us. And so what I'd like to do over the next couple of weeks is to continue thinking about that and to turn to considering what our chapters will be that we will write in this story. I love the notion of the story of this congregation and the story of Christ's church throughout the world being written in a very large book. And at some point, somebody takes that book and hands it over to you and says, now you write your part. And I feel very much that burden. What is it that I would like to write in the time that I have? And so I'd like to consider those chapters. And I'd like to do so by reflecting on something I haven't had an opportunity to do with you all, which is to reflect on your mission statement. Some of you are like, that sounds really corporate and boring, and perhaps in some ways it is. But allow me to explain what a mission statement is supposed to do. The mission statement of of a church is a declaration of what you intend to do. What is it you do? And then you place that alongside a vision statement, which is simply a way of saying, well, what does it look like if we do what we said we're going to do? What is it that we can see in the future if we do the things we're supposed to do? And so both of these things together are, yes, they are aspirational statements, and they are intended to inspire, direct, and guide. And so if we have them, but they don't do anything for us, they don't challenge us and motivate us, well, then they're kind of useless, and I don't want them to be useless. And so I wanted to spend some time, particularly with our mission statement. I like to do that over the next couple weeks. And the missions, it's over there, right? I can't see the hymn boards from here. It's over there, okay. Oh, there's both. Okay, I can't see the hymn boards. But yes, it is three simple words. Cultivate, grow, and renew. Cultivate, grow, renew. I happen to think this is fabulous. First of all, because it's very brief. Unlike your reverend, it is very brief. And they're way more punchy than most of these statements that I have read and a couple that I have written over the years. But again, they aren't any good if they just sit on a hymn board. Whatever we do as a church, we have to ask, well, does this thing we set out to do, does it cultivate, grow, or renew? What does this mission statement ask us to do? And an even deeper question for us, are we willing to do that? What does it ask us to do, and are we willing to do it? 
And so we'll be looking at each of these words over the next couple weeks. So today is cultivate. And I don't know what mental images come into your head, but the first one that comes into my head, not going to lie, is it's this beautiful idea. I've been spending some time with Lord of the Rings for all the obvious reasons. I went back and watched the old movies. And when Samwise, right at the beginning of Fellowship of the Ring, picks up this flower and just kind of stares at it, that's what comes to my mind when I think cultivate. Beauty and growth, all of that, a beautiful agrarian kind of scene plays out before me. But like most of agricultural life, There's a very wide gap between what we think agricultural life is and what agricultural life actually is. Agriculture does not have the luxury of floating on the simple streams of nostalgia, of idyllic notions touched untouched by hard reality. If if I came up to any one of you and said, this is what it looks like to cultivate, you'd be like, child, let me take you out to the uh, pig barns. We'll shovel some stalls, and then you'll see what agricultural life is all about. Once upon a time, I heard someone say that ag is the only place where folks with absolutely no training are allowed to pass themselves off as professionals. I often wonder if faith suffers under a similar stigma, but we could talk about that later. The word cultivate is not this idyllic word as much as we might want it to be. This word has some bite to it. And if we only think about it nostalgically, it will wither quickly under the weight of what it needs to do. The root of the word cultivate means to till, to turn over, to labor. As it develops and kind of moves beyond its agricultural base, it also can mean, uh, excuse me, to tend or to guard. And so if you'll permit me for a minute, the image is actually kind of a destructive one. Turning over soil, loosening it, tearing up weeds and invasives, disturbing something that is settled in order to grow something. And so my question to you, St. Mary's, is, well, why begin here? Why start your mission statement with a word that has a certain kind of violence to it? Because the spiritual life is supposed to be, you know, just faith, hope, and love, right? Nice church ladies and potlucks and the occasional baby in the water. Like, that's what faith is all about, right? Shouldn't we take a gentler approach? Well, let me ask you, should we? Will that achieve what we seek to accomplish as a people? The decision the word cultivate puts right in front of us at the beginning is what do we want more, growth or health? Why don't you think about this for a second? What do we want more, growth or health? Because, friends, growing things is not that hard. Even folks with black thumbs have green lawns. Growing stuff is not that hard. Thank you. (laughs) And growth often happens without thought. And as I got to thinking about growth that happens without thought, I discovered the actual title of my sermon today, not what's printed in here. The actual title of my sermon this morning is, I want you to consider the pokeberry. You all know what a pokeberry is? All right, a couple of you know what a pokeberry is. Here's the thing. Pokeberries, in their own way, are rather magnificent plants. They can grow up to eight feet tall. They're as tall as the corn that is about to be harvested in our fields. They create these beautiful purple berries. Man, I didn't think I was that funny this morning. 
And these berries have often been used in religious ceremonies of one type or another. So in its own way, it's even got these kind of mysterious religious connotations. We can also do this sort of creation, St. Francis thing, the pokeberry feeds the birds, you know, which is how pokeberry gets all over the place because it feeds the birds and then the birds do what the birds are going to do. Here's the bad news about pokeberry. You got a yard full of pokeberry. People over there, those are beautiful plants. The problem is, is that they're poisonous to us. So many people and congregations, friends, are full of pokeberry. Beautiful to look at, nice, growing, huge and tall, and can't feed a soul. In this way, the farmer still has a wisdom to offer this world. Nostalgia wants pretty things that will grow. Farmers want things that will feed. Nostalgia wants pretty things that will grow, but farmers have a responsibility to feed. And so growing the right thing is more important than growing the beautiful and pretty thing. This can feel limiting and harsh to those of us who just want to have these idyllic ideas. But farming at its best is based upon love of one another and health of the ground and the people that we serve. It's love and health, and that is why it can be so very harsh. Cultivation identifies what we want to grow and then provides optimal conditions to get a crop. And it also comes along with the stomach to tear out anything that would get in the way because we need to eat. It is life or it is death. Cultivation, or you might say plowing, is a prominent metaphor in Scripture because as we'll see in a minute, the spiritual life demands a similar kind of stomach. The spiritual life is in so many ways life or death, and so we either, we either have a bunch of weeds or we have things that will feed us. Faith demands a harvest. What is that harvest, you say? Is it a growing church? I'm not sure that it is. Here's the harvest that faith demands. To know God, to know ourselves, and to become all that God has for us. To know the deeper truths that go beyond platitudes and laboratories, all the while being tempted by nostalgic images and shallow tropes. Faith demands that we see beyond the shallowness of the world and get even deeper to the deeper, as, as it says in Lord of the Rings, the deeper magic that is God and Jesus Christ in this world. Throughout the Old Testament, we find God to be a master cultivator, plowing up time and time again, whether it was empires or even his own people Israel. God is constantly plowing to allow this harvest of faith to come to fruition. In all, he, he plows up the world in Noah's Ark. He plows up Egypt as they cross in the Red Sea. And time and time again, he plowed up his own people because the weeds got going. For all of Israel's nobility, they and us are predisposed to not cultivate out the weeds that choke the life of God in us. And in this way, these stories of God cultivating the people is a warning to faith communities. Being a faith community, putting church or faith on the front of it, is no guarantee that we actually act faithfully. And we should not presume that God will leave unproductive fields as they are. Because God, in so many ways, is like a farmer. It is love and health at the core of it, and so God will do what needs doing. God is not afraid of the tiller. 
because God is love and faith and hope and they must be harvested. And so Jesus inherits that tradition. Jesus knows these stories. Jesus understands the ways of the Father. And he is in and of himself, as we confess by faith, the very embodiment of God's life-giving work in the world. And so it's little surprise then that Jesus, growing up in a more agrarian society and knowing these agricultural stories of faith, would use the same images to teach about discipleship. His ministry still attracts us to this day because we are fascinated by the idea that through God's work in our lives that God's life can be manifested in our own. And so we read these gospels saying, Jesus, what does it look like for you to till up our lives? And the thing is, is that Luke chapter 9, which we read today, is a turning point in the gospel of Luke. Luke has laid out all these kind of ideas. Luke has laid out all these different things saying, this guy Jesus has something to teach us. This guy Jesus is something different entirely. We've never seen anybody like Jesus. And it all builds to this chapter here. The entire gospel is mapped out by these revelations of God that we see throughout Jesus' life. It is Luke who gives us the most thorough account of his birth. All the angels singing at Christmas time, that's all Luke. We get the story of his baptism where God tears open the heavens and says, this is my child whom I love, with him I am well pleased. It builds through healings and through teachings all the way to the earlier part of chapter 9 where we get the transfiguration where the disciples go up and they see Jesus in all of his glory, talking to Moses and Elijah, and they again hear God's voice saying, this is my beloved son. They come down the mountain, there's more healings. We also get this time where Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We get the truest statement of faith we've ever gotten out of the mouth of a human being. And it's Peter who will then ultimately betray him. We know this. And so through all of this buildup, Luke is telling us something about who Jesus is. And then verse 51 hits. Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Literally, translated, he hardened his face to go. He hardened his face to go. This is no mere fancy of spiritual imagination. This is not an idyllic notion of let's go up to the place where God lives and let's do some worship. Jesus goes to Jerusalem in conviction and commitment to do the thing that he was put here to do, to destroy the powers of this world by handing himself over in love. Jesus, throughout his ministry, having seen the fallow fields of sin, death, and empire, he resolves to recultivate the world in love. Hard love with the tiller that is the cross and the seed of his own blood, a chiseled jaw and a soft heart, love that would do anything and would tear anything out so that his people might be whole. That's what it means when he said he set his face to Jerusalem. It is a conviction unlike any other. And so when Jesus heads out on this journey, there are many who want to come around him. We're all fascinated by it. There's not a soul on this earth that isn't fascinated by Jesus. Plenty you don't care about the church, but everyone thinks Jesus is somebody that we ought to engage with. It was true in his day as well. There's a great deal of eagerness. A couple of guys come up to him and want to talk to him. The first guy comes up to him and says, hey, Jesus, let's go. I am ready. And Jesus says, you know, there's no sheets and pillows on this journey. He says, you know, this journey is hard. 
Even foxes and birds have it better than you're about to have it, fella. And he withers away. He's got nothing. Jesus actually goes to the second guy and says, come on, come on, we're going to do this. He says, follow me. Jesus sees something in this guy. But he hesitates. He goes, I, okay, but I got to do this other thing first. And Jesus says something that sounds really harsh. Let the dead bury their dead, but you come and follow me. Jesus is willing to uproot even our cultural conventions in order to follow him. But Jesus has his face set towards Jerusalem. Jesus is not playing. If you're still looking around at anything other than Jesus, you're not ready for this journey. And he moves on from guy number two. And then finally, this third guy says, I'm in, but I need to say goodbye. And Jesus says, the one who puts their hand to the plow, or if I can translate it for us, the one who puts their hand to the cultivator and looks back is unfit for the kingdom of God. Now, here's how plowing went down in those days. And you're like, oh, I don't need a farming lesson here. No, you don't. But you do need to understand how this would have happened. Because there's no GPS John Deere's or Alice Chalmers or Oliver's or whatever your tractor of choice is. There was none of that. The one who plowed in those days without the benefit of GPS and electronics would look ahead into the distance and find a spot. And then they would fix their eyes on that spot and plow towards that spot, never blinking, never moving. It's the only way to get a straight line. To take your eye off that target creates disorder, uncertainty, and ultimately a lack of order and discipline necessary to make a harvest happen properly. You get lines that go like this. So the farmer would set his face on a singular point so that the field could be properly prepared. And without that laser focus, well, the field will be less than productive. The one who is uncommitted to tending the soil is both a, a poor farmer and a poor disciple. And Jesus says, the one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is unfit for the work that I am called, calling my people to do in the kingdom. Friends, in a distracted and undisciplined age, our own time, Jesus asks his church to set their face to be serious about cultivation. Cultivate, as Jesus uses it, and as I feel it in my spirit, asks us at our core, what are we really about? Because many people like the idea of Jesus. Jesus, the nostalgic, idyllic, white-skinned, blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy. Good guy, fixes my problems on occasion, teaches my kids some good morals. And here's the lesson. We can grow a church doing that. Growing is not that hard. We can do good morals in Jesus' genie. But it's a church full of pokeberry. It may be beautiful to look at. There's even some religious stuff there. And it's toxic. Friends, here's a lesson the church needs to learn again. We don't need the church to learn how to do good. We don't need the church for good to exist in the world. There are plenty of people who've never heard of Jesus Christ who are wonderful, beautiful, more moral people than I am. The only thing the church of Jesus Christ has in this moment is what I just said. It is Jesus Christ alone. And the only thing we have to offer the world is simply to make him known. And that, friends, 
My conviction is that is the only thing that feeds the world and heals the world. And Paul picks this up later to the Corinthians when he says, I have resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. But it's not easy or natural. Friends, no matter what other branches of the church say, no matter what your favorite speaker says, no matter what is going on, the cultural landscape that we are in is no friend to faith and it has never been a friend to authentic faith in Jesus Christ. And so we cannot expect that there is just faith in the ground and it is just naturally going to grow up into this beautiful harvest of faith in our world. No, friends, if we are serious about doing the only thing we have to offer the world, then we must cultivate Jesus' presence in us and we must cultivate him in our shared work. Now, to be, let me say this up front, we cannot force it. We cannot force people to understand who Jesus is. We cannot force people to fall in love with Jesus. We can't force faith down people's throats. No, we cannot make people come to Jesus. But what we can do is cultivate. We can invest, not in growth, but in health, into creating environments where it is more likely that faith will spring out of the people that we love. And so this is why the author of Hebrews, reflecting on this, as he sought to create a community that would create the kind of environment where faith could happen, wrote these words that Rachel read this morning. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. Let us get rid of the vines that wrap themselves around us and they're pretty and they spread out, but they choke out life. And let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, setting your face on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Paul says, cultivate daily. Cultivation in this way is a call to conversion, not one and done but day by day. To walk the footsteps of Jesus requires a daily singularity of mind. It is a discipline that leads to discipleship. And if you're like, those two words sound kind of similar to one another, it's because they do sound similar, and that is exactly what is intended. It is discipline that creates disciples. And for the disciple, everything is in service to Christ because we have set our face hardened on nothing but Jesus. And as we set out on this journey, here's what we're going to find out. Christ is loving, but Christ has some demands. And that's okay. The reason he's got some demands is because he sees in you what so often we cannot see in ourselves That our deepest and truest selves, the deepest part of us, is the pearl of great price. And boy, I would tear everything out of my life if it only meant that I knew who Jesus actually made me to be. To discover that life, to discover what it means to follow in the footsteps of Christ, who brings the kingdom of God, will ask something of us. It will invite us into patterns and practices that often feel destructive. But if we're thoughtful and listening and engaged with one another, what we'll discover is that there are actually practices that give the best parts of our soul the most nutrition and space they need to flourish. 
And so we can be about plowing up the weeds that entangle us and our culture. Weeds like consumerism, shallow spirituality, polarity, bigotry and hatred, nationalism. The list goes on and on. These might look pretty, but they're pokeberry. They will kill us. And in our own souls, we can do battle against our sins, against our bad habits, against the things that corrode us. And we can let them go because it's all pokeberry anyway. Daily walking with Christ, Christ will plow them up so that the seeds already in us, hear that again, friends, already in us can grow rich, full, and yes, in time, feed the world. And in this way, Jesus is saying to each one of us, here's who I've made you to be. Allow me to cultivate that. Let me tear out what isn't authentically you and let me form you into what you already are at your core. Just keep looking at me. Keep your eyes ahead. Just keep plowing. And in time, the harvest will be immaculate. Trust in the Lord and do good, the psalmist says. Dwell in the land and keep faith. Take pleasure in the Lord that he will grant you your heart's desire, which is simply who you are and who you were always created to be. And so, church, what are we really about? Let's come back to that question. Do we have the stomach for cultivating faith, wonder, and mystery? Let me tell you, we don't have to have that stomach. There are many things we could be about, many things we would be praised for doing, Many things that would grow beautiful plants. And in so many ways, we are surrounded by pokeberry farmers who will look at us and say, y'all are doing a great job. There are many things we can do. But my question is, will it feed a world starving for meaning, for mystery, for God's presence, for hope, and for salvation? The only thing that feeds that hunger is Christ. And so the Spirit whispers to us, in words that Jesus gave us, in words which we will sing here in a second, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you as well.